Welcome back, listeners, and thank you for joining me again for this April episode of the Power of Planning podcast. This month, I want to focus on two topics people generally dread talking about, death and divorce. When I meet with folks to discuss their estate planning, they will frequently ask questions about family law issues. And it's not surprising to me that they raise these questions because of the divorce rates in the United States. According to the American Psychological Association, approximately 40 to 50% of first marriages end in divorce, and approximately 60 to 67% of second marriages end in divorce. So there's definitely an intersection with regard to estate planning considerations and family law. So I am very honored to welcome my special guest this month, Lori Caldwell Carr. Lori is an attorney in Central Florida who practices exclusively in the area of family law since 2005. She represents clients in disputed divorce proceedings and is also collaboratively trained. I'll let her explain what that means. Um, She's a Florida Supreme Court certified family law mediator. She is the past chair of the Orange County Bar Association Family Law Section and served as an executive council member for the family law section of the Florida Bar. So Lori, thank you so much for joining me today and I would love for you to introduce yourself and give everyone an idea of why you're so passionate about helping people work through family law matters and kind of share with us your client-centered, family-focused approach. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa. I'm really honored to be able to speak here with you and to give some information to the public. So um, primarily my goal as a family law attorney is to hopefully help people transition with the least amount of expense and acrimony. And with that being said, that doesn't always happen. Um, I do end up in court sometimes, but collaborative divorce, as you discussed, is a future-focused, goal-oriented process where you have a team of professionals, where you have a lawyer, a mental health, and a financial, and actually each person has a, a, an attorney to represent them. Um, and it's a process of meetings that we go through. Um, In Florida, the good thing we're blessed with is we do have mediation requirements to go to mediation prior to going to court, so that limits a lot of it. One of the problems, and I'm sure you've seen this in your practice too, is that you're taking an emotional process and you're trying to ram it into a legal process. And really, the two don't fit. So that's why in family law, we have a lot of alternative dispute resolution options. Um, One of the things you know, just because you and I have had the opportunity to work together, is a um, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Because if you know that you have a large net worth and you have assets you want to protect, why aren't you going to front and load that? And whether you do that with, you know, premarital contracts, postmarital contracts, or testamentary documents, um, it's all making it very clear as to what you're trying to define and how you're trying to protect it. Absolutely. And I frequently am asked a variety of family law related questions with my practice on a day to day basis. But before we kind of get into those frequently asked questions, I thought it would be helpful to have a foundation and talk generally about some of the key family law concepts like marital property versus non-marital property and equitable distribution and those that you just mentioned, the types of premarital and postnuptial agreements. So in the area of kind of the prevention, uh, we do only deal with financial issues. So the financial issues are typically what you're talking about is equitable distribution and alimony. Equitable distribution is a fancy way of saying that at the time you got get married, you've entered into the personal equivalent of a business partnership. 
Okay. So every asset or liability that comes into that partnership is an asset or liability of the whole, regardless of who brings it in or who takes it out. Now that's based upon you not having any type of a prenuptial, postnuptial, or maybe some type of a te testamentary trust that's limiting those things. So when a court is going to look at, when I go to court and I have to identify the assets and liabilities, we list all assets, we list all liabilities, we try to identify which ones are marital and which are non-marital. A non-marital asset would be something such as maybe a property that was purchased fully paid for in a sole and separate name that's never transmuted. Transmuted is when you actually add the other party, the other spouse's name to that property. So is that through titling then? Typically it's through titling, but what people are also unaware of is that if marital efforts are used to pay down a mortgage, so say that property that we just discussed wasn't fully paid for, and there's a mortgage pay down that's based upon money earned, even if it's by the titled spouse, that can be considered, there's actually a fancy word called a coverture fracture calculation that we actually use when we go to court to determine what that value is as far as the marital portion of the efforts and the pay down of the mortgage. So something that originally was non-marital can become a marital asset? Just that portion. Okay. Just that portion without title. There can be a consideration for the pay down of the mortgage and also the passive appreciation being what the market does. Okay. So actually I just argued that recently in court and it, the law is pretty clear about the fact that if there are marital efforts that pay down a non-marital property mortgage, then that is considered in addition to the passive appreciation that the market has done over that term. So if that asset has increased in value during the course of the marriage, even though it was originally a non-marital asset, then arguably that appreciation is considered a marital asset? Correct, for the purposes of equitable distribution. And this is in the absence of having any sort of a prenuptial or postnuptial agreement? Absolutely correct. Okay. Yes. So one of the things I think that you and I discussed in preparation for this was that a really good vehicle to protect that if you're particularly trying to protect it for children, you know, that you know are going to grow up and get married, sadly or, or gladly, <laughs> whatever the, the thing may be. But bottom line is that you can use that trust to state that, you know, any payments made out of the trust are non-marital, right? Right. And really protect those properties, whether it's real property or other assets, um, by making sure that all of those are paid with non-marital monies. So let's talk about that. So before we get into the trust structure, let's talk about someone who inherits money outright. So it's not structured in a trust for them. Common scenarios is that, you know, uh, one party to a marriage receives an inheritance or if a parent leaves an inheritance for a child. But mm -hmm. again, it's not through a trust. It's just outright to them. And that could be through a will. It could be an outright distribution through a trust. It could be a pay on death or a transfer on death designation on a bank account brokerage account, retirement account, life insurance, all of those sorts of outright pay on death scenarios. In that situation, is that considered marital property or is that inheritance considered non-marital property? Well, unfortunately, like a lot of things in my world, it depends. Right. So if they, so if you receive an inheritance, you put in a sole and separate account in your sole and separate name, you don't put your paychecks in it, 
You don't pay the babysitter out of it. You keep it completely separate and clear and that, you know, all of the pennies going into that account can be traced. Don't back mingle to, it. Correct. Not back to anything marital, then it remains non-marital. Okay. So are there, so keep it titled solely in your name. Correct. Now, you can't spend, can you use the money to pay for household expenses? No, because once you do that You've now, gifted it. You've gifted it to the marriage. Once you take, it, so it's, it's a transmutation. Once you take the money that's in this separate bucket that's all non-marital and you convert it over to paying something that would be considered marital, say, say the property was purchased after the marriage, the mortgage is in joint names, and you use that money to pay the mortgage, you've gifted that to the marriage. Just the portion that you've used to pay Correct. the mortgage, not Correct. whatever is left in that separate account. Correct, because you haven't really commingled anything. You've just taken a, a portion of it out and gifted it. So what if, because I've had clients ask this question, what if they use the money that they received as an inheritance to pay for things for their children, who are also obviously the children of their spouse? Mm -hmm. Does that change the character they, of it? They've gifted it to the child, okay. but that doesn't, again, when you when you look at whether there's been a commingling of accounts, you're looking at monies coming in that are earned by marital efforts. Okay, so right. if I'm out working, so let's just use me as an example. If I'm out working as a lawyer and I'm earning money and I'm taking that marital money and instead of using it to pay for household expenses, I'm putting it that in a trust account, then somebody's gonna say, oh, well, you kind of commingled your marital efforts of working mm -hmm. into that account. So, you know, when are we going to start, you know, taking out the raindrops? Then also, if you're using that account to pay things for regularly out of, you're gifted those to the marriage, so that's diminishing that amount, but you're not necessarily turning it into a marital asset. Does that make sense? Right. So you okay. didn't change the character of what was left in the account. Just, just the distributions that right. you made, mm -hmm. provided it was for household or marital type expenses. Yes. Okay. All right. So then at least what's left in the account is protected, arguably. It should be. Yes. Okay. So with that inheritance, let's say a divorce occurs. Mm -hmm. And now you've got that money in that separate account. You never added your spouse to it. Is that then not subject to equitable distribution in the event of a divorce? Is so long as it's identified and classified as a non-marital asset that was gifted by a third party, it should not be considered. And an, an equitable distribution just for the layperson is when you decide how to divvy things up in the event of a divorce? So typically in an equitable distribution worksheet, we identify all assets, whether they're marital or non-marital. We put them onto a spreadsheet, and then we equalize the ones that are determined to be classified as marital, and that's assets and liabilities. Because the goal is you don't want to have to sell everything and put a big pile of cash in the middle of the table and divide it for dollar for dollar, right? right. What you want to be able to do is say, oh, you know what, I'd really like to keep the house, you know, and that's maybe a marital asset, you know, and you can keep your retirement that you earned during the marriage, it's a marital asset, and we'll give that an offset, right? If okay. there's an offset where one person's going to kind of... The non-marital should be really taken off the table. Where some non-marital assets can be considered as if they cash flow. So if you have some cash flow that you get from a non-marital investment, say, and that cash flow is coming through to you and you're using that cash flow, 
that can be considered, for example, as income for the purposes of alimony. And that was going to be my next yeah. question. So yeah. does that money sitting in that non-marital account factor in to what you have to pay in an alimony? If, if you were getting some cash flow benefits that can be proven on a regular ongoing basis, particularly if they're used for your lifestyle analysis. So, you know, when we go to court, I mean, because a lot of these people are very high net worth, correct? Mm -hmm. So typically we have forensic accountants that go in and they kind of look at all the records and they parse it all out and they figure out what really is truly marital and non-marital. Okay. So that income, when they look at alimony considerations, they're looking at all sources of income. Correct. Your employment and also passive sources, including from non-marital type assets. That it can be considered, yes. Okay. So then looking at the second scenario, you receive an inheritance, but it's in the form of a trust. Mm -hmm. So this is an irrevocable trust. I do this all the time with my clients, right? So they decide to set up lifetime trusts for their children. So after they pass away, a trust gets established for each of their kids. Mm -hmm. And it's distributions for health, education, maintenance, and support. We make it intentionally discretionary, nothing mandatory, so that if the child has any sort of creditors lurking in the future, the creditor can't force a distribution to be made. And also the thought process and part of that discussion is if your child winds up getting divorced, then it wouldn't arguably be subject to equitable distribution, right? Because it's considered a non-marital asset. Is that the case? Okay. So I just, so what I am seeing more and more of as a family law attorney and what I think is a better practice is that there's been requirements now that I've been seeing um, from the family law side where there has to be a postnuptial or a prenuptial agreement that's entered into as it relates to the distribution of those trust monies. Um, Also what I'm seeing more and more is that the distributions are being done by some type of a trustee so that there is an extra layer Um, The problem, and I just recently did a prenuptial agreement based upon one of those types of trusts, I think you and I discussed just in generalities that case, and part of the whole requirement for my client to get the benefits of this trust was that there was going to be some very clear terms put into a postnuptial agreement because she was already married at the time, Um, and there was some pushback from the other side, but ultimately the reality was the way that trust was written, which, you know, from my perspective as what the intent of it was and what I do in my world was very good. I think it was the highest level of protection of those assets in the event that there would be a divorce. Um, So I think that that is the best practice that I'm seeing is that you set up the trust. Um, I know a lot of times people don't want to pay trustees to kind of monitor these funds and they'd rather say, you know, can they pass them? I did go and look for some case law very briefly. Um, I didn't see any that necessarily said, you know, oh, if they're a trustee, you know, it's going to be nabbed right away. Right. But I think for a better practice, and here, here's the problem too that comes down to it. Um, for example, in the situation I just explained, the young woman was getting ready to have her first child. She was very vulnerable. There was a lot of going back and forth on this 
postnuptial, which there shouldn't have been. It was very clear based upon the terms of the trust, which I don't always get, so I was very thankful for that. Um, you're protecting them and from a lot of the emotional stuff that but for that being kind of put on somebody else's shoulders, I think would have been difficult. Yeah, and I want to dig deeper on both of those points because mm -hmm. when I have this conversation with my clients who are parents of adult kids or even little kids kind of mm -hmm. thinking long term, we'll talk about including a provision in there. Very rarely do they do it, honestly, but we'll talk about including that requirement that mm -hmm. their child enter into a prenuptial or postnuptial agreement. And I say to them, it's actually better if we do that in the trust, because then when they do meet that special someone and they get engaged, they can say, this is not me. This mm -hmm. is my parents, mm -hmm. right? They're making me do this, you know? Otherwise, I'm going to get disinherited if yeah. I don't have it. Though it says it right here in the trust agreement itself. So it's, you know, they're no longer the bad guy. The parents are the bad guys. And normally, they're okay being the bad guys in this kind of circumstance. Right. So that's why I normally recommend it. And you can kind of craft the protection as narrow or as broadly as you like, you know, as the clients in the trust document we can dictate that the agreement has to be limited to just what they're inheriting from the parents, which I think is what you've seen more typically, Correct. right? Correct. I had one where they wanted just a comprehensive prenup or postnup, you know, where it wasn't just the assets that they inherited, but all of their, you know, non-marital assets to remain non-marital and all the appreciation from those assets over the years. So that's generally, I think, more offensive to the other side, yes, right? And I would agree. Harder to negotiate. Um, but in the absence, I would say 95% of my clients don't put those types of requirements in the trust. They just simply say, after they pass away, this trust gets established for their child. And nine times out of 10, they'll say, when the child reaches a certain age, right often 35, mm -hmm, the magic age. right? That's the magic age. They're done with college. They're settled in a career. They're settled with their own family. Let's allow them to be co-trustee or sole trustee of their own trust. Because initially they'll have other older family members or a trusted friend or an, a professional serving as trustee. And mm -hmm. then they figure, well, you know, let's give the kids some sense of empowerment. We're holding their money in trust for their lifetime. We hate to have them go to somebody else and ask for permission to get money. Let's pick that magic age of 35 and, you know, let them do it. But from what I'm hearing from you is there's a potential risk with that, right? Because if they elect to be sole trustee, now it's easier for an argument to be made in the divorce setting that, hey, this could potentially be a, a marital asset. Well, it not 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 as much from the trust i think from the stuff you know potentially you know like again if they're getting regular cash flow say the trust is invested in accounts right and they're rather than reinvesting right whatever they get in dividends they're pulling it out and they're using it to pay for things so that's again more for the alimony component okay. right more for the fact of because what, what you look at in alimony is one party's need because the major document other than the petition you fill out in a divorce matter is a is a very complete financial affidavit. Okay. And there's documents called mandatory disclosure, 
which are basically records of bank accounts, credit cards, all you know, everything you own. So it's it's a very comprehensive list. So when you're looking at not just equitable distribution, but when you're looking at alimony, you're going to look at that financial affidavit, and it starts out with the lower income earning parties need, and that's all the income they receive personally plus all their expenses that they spend, right? Right. So if you have you know, a marriage, for example, where you have one very high income earner and maybe one lower income earner or even a, a stay-at-home mother, I mean, I've seen you know, financial affidavits where there's you know, a $10,000, $20,000 need based upon lifestyle because we do a lifestyle analysis well. Okay. So then it's going to switch over to the higher income earner's ability to pay. So if they've had a trust that's flowed through, you know, all of this interest into an account, even if it's not in separate names, I mean, in joint names, even if it's in separate names, okay. and they're using that to pay the mortgage, you know, pay the health insurance, pay, you know, they're using it to pay for marital things, there's a legal argument that can be made called commingling. The other problem with family law, and I'm sure it's the same in your area, the law constantly changes, yes. right? It's not stagnant. So we can't just look at statutes just in isolation. We have to go look at case law, and it's, it changes. And, this, and it's very fact-specific. Correct. Every case is unique. Every client is unique. And as I always like to say on this podcast, every state has its specific laws. So what Lori and I are talking about today is Florida law, because that's what we know we're licensed in Florida. And if you live in a different state, then you obviously need to consult with a professional in your state, because you know there's uniform probate and trust codes, but each state adopts their own variation of those. And then Mm -hmm. as Lori mentioned, there's case law. And so I would imagine the same thing is true for family law as well. Oh, absolutely. In fact, there's some states that are community property states where the way we view our law here is completely different. In fact, I think it's worse. But (laughs) (laughs) So that, so, and I've always, there's a statute in the trust code that says if you've got one of these trusts and it's a discretionary trust and it's got what we call spendthrift language, right? Mm -hmm. That says the Mm -hmm. beneficiary can't assign the interest and do all those things that it can still be considered for alimony purposes, particularly if those obligations are not otherwise being met. So it's not like a judge is gonna allow you to have this big pot of money over here and you say, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't afford to pay alimony this month or I can't afford to pay child support. There is a statute in the trust code that says, no, it's, it's available for those things if you're not otherwise meeting those obligations. Yeah. It's also up for exposure to attorney's fees. I've got those a couple of times. So. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah. even more reason, even mm-hmm. though it's a trust, even mm-hmm. more reason to consider the prenuptial, postnuptial. And, you know, you, you, and I think you laid these statistics out perfectly, Vanessa, at the beginning. You know, just think, think about the business part of it. You're entering into the personal equivalent of a business partnership that has a 50% failure rate or more. So it's a known why, risk. Yeah, and why wouldn't you? And I'm saying even if I were the lesser income earning party, you know, or the why wouldn't I want to enter into agreement saying, you know, if we've been married 10 years, you know, and you continue to earn at the level you're earning, you know, cuz we can make these very specific, you know that. And why wouldn't you want to know what's going to happen? You know, if it does if after 10 years then at least I get this amount. And I know what this amount is. 
because you can clarify those things. You can't speak to things to do with children and child support, but you can speak to anything to do with equitable distribution or alimony. Child support, you cannot waive, obviously. You cannot waive. That is a child's right to be supported as, as if the parties were together, which in reality doesn't happen, but that's a concept. Right. But it's a mathematical calculation. And, and like you said, you can customize the terms of a prenuptial and postnuptial agreement, just like we can customize the terms of a trust, and the two can work together. Oh, absolutely. You know, the trust, like you mentioned earlier, can dictate what the prenup says. A lot of times the prenup will say, okay, within so many days of the marriage or so many months of the marriage, then one of the parties will amend their estate planning documents to yes. include these provisions mm -hmm. and then we'll make sure that the estate plan addresses and follows the requirements as set forth in the prenuptial or postnuptial agreement. So Absolutely. there's a constant symbiosis between those two practice areas. Yeah. And I think they they definitely go hand in hand. I mean, whenever there's a postnup or a prenup, I refer them and you know this because right. I think you've got some of my referrals right. you know to go look at their testamentary documents as well yes. right and make sure that they line up and the big difference so the prenup you enter before marriage correct and the postnup is after correct beyond that what are the differences like in Florida there's mandatory financial disclosures for the postnup but you do that on both right so I'm going to tell you I think you need to do the mandatory disclosure documents for any type of contract you're entering into, whether I'm doing a prenuptial, a postnuptial, or a marital settlement agreement, which is typically what people are using when they're going for a divorce. Okay. Where I, you want to provide full and fair financial disclosure. Because otherwise, that's an argument they could use to say that it's not valid or enforceable. Correct. They didn't know what they were waiving Correct. if they didn't have full disclosure of your assets. Correct. And have, are there people that do that? I imagine, but I do not think it's the best practice. And then similarly, it's recommended that each party have their own counsel. Absolutely. And if one doesn't have counsel, I know there's an opportunity to put that in the agreement that mm -hmm. they had the opportunity mm -hmm. to get an independent Absolutely. counsel and they chose yes. not to. Yes. But then they could use that as a basis after the fact to say, well, I didn't fully understand what I was signing, right? Well, but then the burden kind of goes back it to shifts. the fact that it, it shifts back to the fact that you were given every reasonable opportunity to do that, right? Okay. You were given every reasonable opportunity. You there Chose was no there to. was no fraud. We provided all the records. There was no duress. Nobody was saying you have to do this, you know, two days before the wedding, for example. Um, so there's really no you know you were given ten names of people you could go talk to. You were advised. You were given every financial record, and you made the choice not to. So at that point, you know, there, and again, there's case law, unfortunately, on both sides. But in general, if you can establish that you've made every reasonable effort to allow them to have the opportunity to have it reviewed and they've made the choice not to, then that's their choice. And you touched on timing. Mm -hmm. So how far in advance, if you're doing a prenup, mm -hmm. how far in advance should it be negotiated and entered into so that there can't be this argument that you were under duress and it was right on the eve of the wedding. Is there any magic? So I don't think there's a magic number. I mean, there are like 30, when somebody calls me 30 days before a wedding, I'm like, I'm not, no, not okay. doing it. Yeah, not doing it. 
Um, I've had some cases where, you know, maybe it's 120 or 90 days out. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm like, so if everybody's got everything lined up pretty much as far as the documents and the fact that they've already got another lawyer lined up to review and it's all going to flow pretty quickly. And a lot of times it will depend on the other attorney that I'm working with in that case, because we do have like your community, a community where we know who we can work with and trust and try to get things accomplished, but definitely not. I mean, I think you want it signed well more than 30 days prior to the wedding. I mean, the the earlier the better, in my opinion. But that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, you always outline the risks for your clients. I do the same with mine, what they ultimately choose to do, you know, and then as the lawyer, like you said, what your comfort level is and my comfort level, I'm more conservative as I know you are too. Um, but it's, you know, this is why I think it's important for folks to understand what best practices are. Correct. And what general guidelines for best practices are. And they have to understand as attorneys looking at the law, we are, we're seeing, it's almost like doctors that see, you know, all of the diseases you could get. We right. see all the bad things that could happen. Exactly. And we don't really want to sit down and create a whole list of, oh, danger, 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 danger. But at the same time, you know, we're doing it to protect our clients. Exactly. We're looking at things from a certain perspective. Correct. Which, unfortunately, I've been accused of being called cynical, but, <laughs> you know, on a day-to-day basis, when you see certain yeah, things, you true. just that's true. have a tendency to go there. So True. Um, well, one other thing that comes up quite frequently, and the stat kind of lends itself to this, is second marriages. Mm-hmm. So... Estate planning from the perspective of a second marriage, normally it's remarrying later in life. Now the parties have acquired their own independent wealth. They've got children from a prior marriage or relationship. There's this dual goal of providing for spouse, but then also making sure to provide for those children from a prior marriage. And what I wanted to kind of touch on with you first and foremost in this regard is spousal rights that come just by virtue of the marriage. Um, Rights to a person's estate, certain rights to a person's estate, and I'll kind of outline what those are. Um, The first is the elective share. So here in Florida, you can't disinherit your spouse. Um, You can disinherit your kids all you like, um, but you can't disinherit your spouse. They are entitled to 30% of your elective estate. And we say elective estate, the statute makes that very clear that it's not just your probate estate, which as you all know from one of my prior podcasts, probate are the assets that have to go through the court process in order to be distributed to your beneficiaries. It was years ago originally just limited to the probate estate, but then people were very adeptly making sure that there was nothing in the probate estate by putting beneficiaries on life insurance and retirement and bank accounts and setting up revocable living trusts. So now when we talk about elective estate, we're talking about all of those things, jointly titled assets and pay on death accounts and all of the um, revocable living trusts and all those types of assets. So 30%, the spouse, if they're not provided for in in your estate plan documents and receiving at least 30%, then they can make a claim at your death for the elective share. Now, that can be waived in a prenuptial or Mm postnuptial agreement. Mm -hmm. So for those that you've done, when folks come to you for those types of agreements, are they more concerned about what happens in the event of divorce or are they also kind of thinking through in second marriage situations Mm -hmm. 
what happens in the event of my death? So the answer to that is it depends, right? It right. depends on the circumstances of the parties. It depends on the ages of their children. You know, there's a lot of things. It depends on what they've already got in place. So there's a lot of things that it depends on. Um, I think in general, cases where there have been postnuptials or prenuptials that have involved children from previous marriages, there is some consideration, absolutely, that's done for that from a, and a lot of that does come more on the testamentary side, right? right? Um, so I think it, it, every case like that is so fact specific, yes. right? And I've had, you know, many cases where sometimes you would think, okay, so it's the higher income earning party that's probably more concerned about it, but I've had some second marriages where the, the one that is getting married is going to be losing quite a bit of support in the form of alimony once oh, they remarry. Interesting. So, okay. you know, there's a conversation kind of had about that, correct? Right, about that loss of income. income. Yeah, so the, it, everything is so fact specific in our world, isn't it? It is, it really is. Yeah. Um, some of the other rights, uh, in, in terms of inheritance rights, you know, Florida has very unique homestead laws. Mm -hmm. So if you're survived by a spouse, then by operation of law, they have to inherit the homestead property. Mm -hmm. It's this concept of we want to protect the family unit. We don't want the spouse to be out on the street. Um, and so if your spouse is not on the deed with you to the property, which is ideally what we would want to see. But if there are circumstances where they may may not be appropriate, then they are going to receive, they have two choices, right? If they're not provided the, the house either through deed or through the estate plan documents, they can take a life estate interest mm -hmm. in the house and then the remainder vests in your descendants, so your children, and if that means kids from a prior marriage, then that's how it would work. They have the life estate interest, they can live there as long as they mm -hmm. wish to do so or until their death, and then at their death, the remainder interest goes to the kids. kids. Now, that means they can't sell it unless the kids agree, um, but that also means the kids can't kick them out while they're alive. And the other option, more recently, the statute was updated to give a second option to the surviving spouse where they could elect to be joint owners and own an yeah. undivided 50% interest in the property. And I had a situation a number of years ago or several years ago where the spouse elected to do that because she was living in a nursing home already. And she didn't want to have 100% of all of the household expenses because she wasn't living there. So she elected to do the joint ownership so that the children, her stepkids, would have to pay a portion of those expenses. And we wound up selling the property after a few years, um, but that's homestead property rights. Um, do you ever have clients specifically waive rights to homestead because you can identify in a prenup mm -hmm. and a postnup what is considered to be the homestead property and whether or not that remains marital or non-marital property or how that's treated at death right right so i'm and i'm and i'm trying to think of fact patterns now that i've had but i i know that there have been instances where there's been a marital home of one spouse or the other that was fully paid for, 
Um, in one case, my client's husband had died, mm -hmm. so she had already received the home, and absolutely by agreement, that was, you know, it, and it would have been her premarital property anyway. It was in her sole name, and it was, but absolutely we did add to the agreement that if anything happened where there was going to be any type of encumbrance or anything placed on the property, that that was still going to be considered her sole and separate property. Okay. And then we also have something called exempt property. So surviving spouse is entitled to household furniture, mm -hmm. furnishings, appliances, up to $20,000, and two cars. Um, and that, again, can be waived in a prenuptial or postnuptial mm -hmm. agreement. Mm -hmm. But if it's not, then by operation of law, if you're married at the time of your death, then your spouse can make a claim for exempt property if they're not otherwise inheriting those things from you through your estate plan documents. And then there's a family allowance of up to $18,000, and that's considered to be reasonable for maintenance during the course of the estate administration. And those are all cumulative rights. So it's not like if the spouse gets one, they're not entitled to the others. They're right. entitled to all of those. Um, so generally, have you seen prenuptial or postnuptial agreements where they waive kind of all of those things? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's okay. definitely documents that have a full waiver of all the rights. Okay. Yeah. And then others can carve out, like I've seen it where they waive everything except homestead. Correct. Okay. And then if an individual, you know, disinherits his spouse and doesn't at least provide for them in this manner, then they can make a claim against the decedent's estate for all of those particular statutory rights that they have. And like we talked about, those can be waived in a, in a nuptial agreement or through a deed. There mm -hmm. is a more recent statute with regard to homestead that if the spouse signs off on a conveyance of the homestead property and the deed has specific language from the statute that says they hereby consent to this conveyance even though they know that they otherwise would have inherited the property, then that's considered a valid right. waiver mm -hmm. of that right to mm -hmm. homestead. Um, so when I meet with clients and it's a second marriage situation and we talk about their options from an estate planning standpoint, you know, like everything else, there could be outright um, if they own assets jointly, you know, what I tell folks is if you have joint assets together, if one of you dies by operation of law, they're going to get everything. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, we can structure and do all these trusts and things like that. But if we don't retitle how the assets are, it's really not going to follow through with your planning. Um, and I've had more than once a situation where a couple said, I completely trust, right? They just did basic wills. Everything goes to spouse outright. I completely trust that if I die, they will not disinherit my children. And I have the conversation and I say, I'm not suggesting this will happen. I'm just saying based on past experience, they can very well, after your death, revisit their will and completely disinherit your kids. And I've seen it more yes. than once. I bet you have. Um, and even situations where I didn't think it was going to happen, it still <laughs> happened. Um, so that's something I always warn clients about. Um, so then we talk about, okay, how do we prevent that from happening? We go back to the trust structure. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this is where there's always kind of a give and take with trust terms because 
the spouse is always, and, and interestingly, I had this come up um, more recently with a couple that this is their one and only marriage. They've been married decades and they have kids together, um, but they're very concerned about remarriage if one of them dies and what happens to the assets. So I'll get into that in just a minute. I was getting a little ahead of myself, but in the situation of a second marriage, if you really want what I tell clients, and I don't know if, you know, from a family law perspective, if there's anything more that you recommend advising them, but I said, if you really want to protect the situation, then you should have separate trusts. And when you have your own revocable trust at your death, it becomes irrevocable. And you can provide a marital trust for the benefit of your spouse. You don't want that spouse to be the sole trustee because even if the trust terms are very specific, if they have access to all of the funds, they can take them out and possibly do something contrary to the terms. So you have to have them along with someone else be co-trustee. Now, you don't want to have your child, like a stepchild, and then be co-trustee because that's just a recipe for disaster, which I'll be talking about in the July podcast. Um, but you want to ideally have someone neutral be co-trustee with the spouse so that they, if, if at all, or you know, just have an independent financial neutral like a corporate trustee, be the trustee, making distributions for the benefit of the spouse for their lifetime and then at their death the assets that remain will go to your kids. And that way you have assurances that there will hopefully be assets left at that point to provide for your children from a prior relationship or a prior marriage. Other possible planning options is sometimes clients will just leave if there's sufficient assets, money off the top to the kids. Right. Knowing, yeah. okay, well, they're going to get this life insurance policy or they're going to get these dollar amounts from the trust and then everything else will go into the marital trust. That way they don't have to wait for my spouse to pass before they inherit. Um, because most often, not in all cases, but most often, and I don't necessarily think this is because of ill will, stepkids don't normally maintain a relationship with their step-parent when they're parent is gone Correct. just because it just naturally kind of diminishes over time there are exceptions to that but most of the clients that I have worked with over the years that's just the case and so to create a dynamic where they have to maintain a relationship and be co-trustees or certainly the spouse is not going to want to have to go to their stepkid and say can I have money to buy x y and z you just kind of have to thick through those potential conflict situations and what can create dysfunction, you know, among the family. So, you know, if you have the ability to designate specific assets to go to the kids, that way you know they're taken care of immediately, that's, you know, a second option. But the key there is really kind of revisiting the titling of your assets. Because again, if things are joint, yeah. It doesn't exactly. matter if you set up this trust, like I've talked about before, if you don't fund the trust properly, then all the greatest customized terms in the world aren't gonna do anything with regard to the, the distribution exactly yes. of your assets. Yes. 
And certainly if you want to leave certain assets outright to spouse, you can do that. You know, one of the considerations is retirement accounts now because of the passage of the SECURE Act and its predecessor, SECURE 2.0, children, once they reach the age of majority, unless they're chronically ill or disabled, only have 10 years to take out all of the retirement funds they inherit from a parent and pay tax on it. I didn't know that. Spouses have their lifetime. So there's some income tax benefits. So it's really important for you to just kind of sit down with your estate planning attorney and talk asset by asset. What if I am leaving certain assets to my spouse and certain assets to my kids, are there particular tax considerations here in terms of deciding which assets go to who? Um, and, And those are all, like you said, everything is fact specific, case by case. It all depends on the circumstances. Yes. Um, So what happens if my spouse remarries after I die? This is another thing that comes up all the time. And I have one camp of clients that say, I'm gone. I want them to be happy. (laughs) You know, let, let them enjoy their lives. And then I have the other camp that says, okay, what can I do to protect the assets? Because I'm very concerned that if they get remarried, Right. And then now they've got an estate plan that leaves everything to their new spouse. Then our kids that we had together could very well be disinherited because, you know, that new spouse is not going to most likely create an estate plan that's going to provide for their stepkids. Correct. Um, And so that is what I've dealt with more recently with a client because he had seen firsthand his sister-in-law where she had been disinherited because her father got remarried and everything went to his new wife. So how do you handle that? So what we talk about there again is trust planning. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about the trust because the trust gives you the ability to alleviate those concerns. You know, we would not use a joint revocable trust in that situation because Mm -hmm. that means that they own everything together as husband and wife. And normally the surviving spouse can change the terms of the trust. They can take distributions from the trust at any point in time. So that's not giving you that protection. Um, Each spouse, again, can have separate trusts with those marital trust provisions. Again, we wouldn't want to have the surviving spouse be the only trustee over their trust. We would want to have a financial neutral or a co-trustee situation. And we can craft the marital trust terms as limited or as broad as the client wants them to be. So we can say that they have to take into account other resources that are available to the surviving spouse, or we can say that there should be generous distributions made to kind of help them continue to live the life that they're accustomed to, like you mentioned, you Mm -hmm. know, with the standard of living. Living. Mm -hmm. And then we look at, in some instances, Clients will want to put restrictions that those distributions will cease in the event that person cohabitates with someone. Yes, we put cohabitation in ours too. Now, clients have said, what about putting in language, if they remarry, then they lose all benefits to the trust. And I've seen trusts that include this, but arguably, that's unconstitutional, right? I was going to say, no, yes. Right. Yeah. Because that's a restraint on marriage, which is a fundamental freedom that we have in the United States, right? So that could be challenged. I would think so, yes. Okay. 
I was wondering if you yeah. had ever yeah. dealt I'm, with any cases I've not dealt with that, that personally, but I would think that could be challenged, okay. yes. And then we could also structure the marital trust that would require the surviving spouse to enter into a prenuptial. Absolutely. Or a postnuptial agreement. Absolutely. Again, to kind of protect and make sure that these trust assets will not become vulnerable in the event they divorce after they remarry. Right. Absolutely. And again, certain assets can be left outright to spouse and other assets left outright to the kids if there's a concern in that instance. Um, the other thing that came up is how can I prevent my former spouse from getting my homestead when I die? So in this instance, we have a divorce situation um, or a couple that had a child but were never married Paternity. in Florida. If you pass away and you're survived by a minor child, then we cannot put a provision in your trust or will that directs the homestead property to go to someone other than your child. Unless you're married, right? You're, new, you're remarried mm -hmm. or something, then it can go to surviving spouse. But even then, it has to be done in the form of a deed. That's why we always like to have the spouse on the deed with you because the homestead is not subject to devise if you have a spouse or a surviving child or descendants. Right. So I had met with someone who said, okay, well, what happens, because I have a minor child, in the event I die, who gets the house then? And I said, well, that would be the guardian of your child. Um, and she said, well, that's my ex, and I don't want them to have it. And I said, well, by operation of law, I mean, they are correct they yes. are the they have priority as the parent and natural guardian well, yes if you, if you have a child with an ex-spouse and you die that child is basically the sole child of the living parent yes so under florida probate law the ex is now going to be the owner of that property in a fiduciary capacity Correct. as guardian for the child until such time the child turns 18. Correct. There is a planning tool that is the result of a more recent statute that now allows us to put the house in an irrevocable trust so that yeah. it doesn't um, undermine the Florida homestead laws. It's permitted. Um, and it allows for someone other than the ex-spouse to be the trustee of the trust, provided it has all the requisite terms that it be for the benefit of the descendants or, you know, the minor children and all of that. Have you encountered that with you any know, of your clients? Personally, I have not okay. encountered that where I've had somebody die and yeah no I've not okay and that's an interesting fact scenario yeah sure. I may be drafting one of those in the near future because that's come up more recently and because it's a newer statute there's not much in the way of commentary on it but at least I wanted everybody to know that there is a way to address and alleviate that concern it's just something that you'll Absolutely. need to discuss with your estate planning attorney um, Another thing that comes up is what effect does divorce or dissolution or invalidity of a marriage have on the terms of a will, trust, and disposition of certain assets at your death? So when you work with families, mm -hmm. 
what do you tell them about their estate planning once you've completed the process of Well, divorce? I refer them to an estate planning attorney right. and advise them that they want to make sure that their intent based upon death, because unfortunately the way the world is now particularly, right? It's not necessarily based upon your age or um, what kind of health you're in. I mean, things have kind of alarming things have been happening over the last couple of years, right? That yes. nobody would predict. So I tell them regardless, you should have a, you know, testamentary plan that affects your life moving forward. You know, what your wishes and goals are moving forward. Of course, again, absolutely, if there's a prenup or postnuptial, you want to make sure that that is, you know, you've got the testamentary documents to support that, that they're going hand in hand together. I think that when you get to a point, particularly when you have children, you have an, a responsibility. I think it's irresponsible to not have some type of a testamentary plan um, if you have children. So um, I rely on you and you know other attorneys that do your type of work. Right. But I, I put that in my closing letter when I do a closing letter, whether it be for a divorce or for any type of prenuptial, postnuptial that you may want to go back and look at your testamentary documents because what you're doing can significantly affect those. And yes. that if you don't have them, you probably need them. Yes, and that it's interesting because how frequently we'll see people that they've been divorced for a while and they haven't updated their estate plan. You know, they still have their former spouse in the documents and there are protective statutes in Florida that say if you've divorced, then they are essentially deemed to have predeceased you mm -hmm. in the instance of a will or a trust. Um, and similarly, we've got statutes that address life insurance and pay on death and transfer on death accounts and, and things of that nature in, in the same vein that if, if you're divorced, then if they're still designated as beneficiary on there, then they're deemed to have predeceased you. But I had a situation where it was a federal retirement account. Ooh, FRS, yeah. Yes. And they basically fine. said, I sent them the statute because the gentleman had not updated his beneficiary after he divorced. And I said, well, here it is. Florida says that they basically predeceased. It can go to, and they care. said, oh, no, that's a state care. statute. They We're governed care. by federal yeah. law. We don't yeah. care what the Florida statute has to say. Yeah, they don't care. So there's exceptions there. Absolutely. And so the best way to do that, like I say over and over again with this podcast, the power of planning. You've got the power. If, you, if you've gone through that divorce process, you must take it upon yourself as you've advised them in that closing letter to make sure that they revisit all of their accounts and all of their estate plan documents. And if they haven't done them in the past, do them now. This is an opportune time to do that because you want to be able to dictate what happens to your assets at your death. Absolutely. You don't want some federal law to dictate that your ex-spouse is now going to receive all of your retirement monies instead of your kids or whoever else you otherwise would want to designate. Well, yeah, and it, it is always amazing to me when I recommend that, how 
people look it's almost like people are more afraid of acknowledging they're going to die than they are of their divorce right yes and I'm like reality is you never thought you were going to be divorced and you're getting divorced so one thing I'm going to guarantee to you you're not guaranteed to be divorced but you're guaranteed to die yes so unfortunately you really do need to make sure you handle this particularly when you have children right absolutely don't assume that the other parent is going to do what they're supposed to do you do what you're supposed to do exactly and and I really do think you've hit it on the head it's these are topics that nobody wants to face you know certainly one's own mortality and especially after they've gone through an emotional and trying time of a divorce but it you can't ignore them. I mean, you Correct. can't put your head in the sand and just pretend that it's not going to happen to you. Uh, you know, the the better approach would be to say, okay, I know this is inevitable. Hopefully it's going to happen later instead of sooner. But right. if we at least do what we need to do in the way of planning, then I've got the peace of mind in knowing, like you said, if I particularly in the case of children, that they'll be provided for, my wishes will be followed. And I will be able to name those people who I trust, and I want to be in a position to serve as my fiduciaries instead of the state of Florida deciding Correct. who's going to serve in those critical roles. Correct. So what I hope everyone has you know, determined today as a result of our podcast and kind of recognized is that there's many different ways your world of family law and my world of estate planning intersect. Um, and we hope that you found this podcast informative. I want to give a big thank you to Lori Caldwell Carr for sharing her insights today and her expertise. Um, please join me again next month. May is National Elder Law Month, so I will discuss a variety of elder law topics in detail. So thank you so much. Vanessa, thank you for having me.